Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samir Keynes, the US Economics and Trade Editor for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bown, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. This episode is about the story of aluminium, or aluminum, if you find it too challenging to include the final I. Aluminum is a metal, and it has a lot in common with steel. It's used in cars and construction and for aerospace. And as some of you may have heard by now, the Trump administration is claiming that imports of aluminium are a threat to America's national security. Now, you should listen to episode 24 if you want to understand how doing this threatens the entire global trading system. But today, we're going to do a deep dive into the weeds of just how this industry and these tariffs are actually working. First, it is important to understand where aluminium comes from. Fun fact. Of all the metals found in the Earth's crust, aluminum is the most common. But in the 1800s, people thought it was more precious than gold or even silver. That was because out in nature, aluminium just isn't really found on its own. Aluminium is really common, but it's generally found in the form of a rock called bauxite. That's this reddish rock with bubbles in it. Maybe just Google it. Today, the most bauxite mining happens in Australia, China, Brazil, and India. And if you look hard, there is a bit of bauxite in the United States, in Arkansas and Alabama and Georgia, but it doesn't really get mined all that much in the United States. So there's a lot of bauxite around, but it took scientists until the late 1800s to work out how to extract the aluminium from the bauxite. It turns out it is a two-step process. Step one is something called the Bayer process, where you go from bauxite to aluminium oxide, or alumina. Alumina is this sort of white powder thing. Step two is the famous one. That's where you go from alumina to make aluminum. This is the smelting stage. And when people talk about primary aluminum production, they're talking about this bit, the process of turning the alumina into the aluminum. So stage two, this primary production, involves zapping the alumina with a huge amount of electricity. So if you want to make aluminum and be competitive, the cost of energy is just really, really important. Up to around two-fifths of the cost of making aluminium is just the energy costs. That's why sometimes aluminium is called solid electricity. So that's primary aluminum production. But one of the cool things about aluminum is that it's recyclable. You don't necessarily need to make it from scratch. You can just melt down the older aluminum. And if you do that, it's called secondary aluminium production. So a lot of the focus recently has been on primary aluminium production, the smelting bit from scratch. But according to the American Aluminium Association, nearly 40% of the North American aluminium supply is created through the secondary production. I had a lot of fun learning about this. Some of the recycled scrap aluminum is just melted down beer and soda cans. But a lot of the scrap, sometimes a company will be sent a sheet of aluminum and they'll cut out the bit they want in just the right shape and then send the rest back. So think of aluminum sheet as like cookie dough. You roll it out, you've got your cookie cutters to make your fancy shaped cookies, but then you have a bunch left over that you can roll out again to make even more cookies. Moving back to reality, the the cookie is, say, the door of the Ford F-150 truck or maybe part of the fuselage of a Boeing airplane. So that is how aluminum is made. And the next question is, who makes it? Back in the early 1970s, globally speaking, America was a really big player. There were loads of smelters and loads of primary aluminium production. But since then, two things have happened. First, China. Over the 2000s, China got really, really big. We'll tweet out the chart showing the rise in its production. It's amazing. In the year 2000, it made 3 million metric tons of aluminum. 
By 2017, it made more than 12 times that. That's 36 million metric tons. Today, China supplies more than half of the world's aluminum. The second thing that happened is that the distribution of production between the U.S. and Canada changed a lot. Basically, over the past couple of decades, American primary aluminium production has collapsed. In 1998, there were 23 smelters. In 2017, there were five. And nowadays, if you only look at primary aluminum, as the American Commerce Department did, around 90% of it is imported. But remember, primary aluminium production is not the only way to get aluminium. If you're only considering primary, then you're ignoring the secondary, recycled stuff. And according to the U.S. Geological Survey, last year of U.S. aluminium supply, around 7% was primary aluminium smelted in the U.S., 34% was secondary aluminium, also made in the U.S., and the rest, around 60%, is imported. Now, that's high, but it's not 90%. And a lot of these imports are coming from Canada. What's happened is that as American smelting declined, Canadian smelting has been increasing. Today, around half of the aluminum imported into the United States comes from Canada. Arguably, just as it's a bit misleading only to think about primary aluminium, it's also a bit misleading to separate out Canada and the U.S. The union covers workers in both countries, and the companies even tend to think of them as one combined economic area. The Aluminium Association in America, it doesn't split out shipments between countries just because it's too annoying for the companies to separate them. The point is, there's a narrative out there that American primary aluminum production has been destroyed. As of the end of last year, there were basically two companies left making primary aluminum in the U.S., Alcoa and Century Aluminum. But reality is just a bit more complicated. First, over that time period, there's been a shift towards secondary aluminum production. There's also been this shift towards Canadian smelters, which have access to cheap hydroelectric power. Remember, energy costs are really important. And finally, there's been competitive pressure from the Chinese aluminum smelters. Some bits of the American aluminum industry have actually been doing pretty well. Compared to steel, aluminum is more expensive and not quite as strong, and so it isn't used as much. But demand for it has been growing. It's lighter, which means that if you use it to make a plane or a car, you don't need to then use as much fuel. So aluminum has become increasingly popular in those sectors as an input, as well as being used to make cans and foil and things like that. Just to put some numbers to that, primary aluminium production accounts for around 3% of employment within the American aluminium industry. And while jobs in that bit have been falling, jobs in the other bits, in the secondary production and in the processing, they've been rising. So that overall, over the past few years, there's been an increase. But there is one thing that pretty much everyone in the North American aluminum industry does agree on, and that's that China is a problem. I should say at this point that we have decades of steel guys complaining about foreign competition and asking for protection. That really hasn't happened in aluminium. Historically, they've been pretty pro-free trade. But now, the American aluminum companies think that all this Chinese aluminum production hasn't been driven by market forces. Instead, they see these state-owned and state-subsidized companies flooding the market with more aluminum than the world needed. And they complain that these Chinese companies aren't shutting down capacity when low prices are forcing everyone else to have to do so. So if you're an American company and you think that the Chinese producers are a problem, then one option you have is to start claiming that imported aluminium coming in from China is being unfairly subsidized or it's being dumped onto the American market. And we did see that happen. So they started copying steel starting in around 2010 
And the industry filed anti-dumping cases, and essentially they stopped most of the direct imports from China coming into America. But aluminum is a commodity, and the risk is that if you push it out of one place, it just comes in another way. Even more so than steel, the price of aluminum is set on global markets. And if you're worried about artificially depressed prices, it's really hard to fix with these country-specific tariffs. Some of the problem might not even be in prices now. If you want to start a new smelter, it's going to cost you billions of dollars that will take you decades to pay off. It's a really big commitment. And having this huge Chinese capacity out there that responds in weird ways to prices, that just creates a really uncertain environment. And that makes it really difficult for aluminium company executives to want to invest in new capacity outside of China. And fundamentally, these American companies think that the Chinese producers are getting unfair help. This sounds like a familiar story. We've already spoken on Trade Talks about Chinese state-owned banks giving loans at cheap rates. As well as these cheap loans, in this case, the question is whether the Chinese smelters are also getting subsidized coal, energy, and alumina. Now, it turns out this case is one example of someone doing what I would have actually suggested. The Obama administration sued the Chinese government over this issue at the World Trade Organization. Yes, this is someone accusing the Chinese of breaking the rules within the rule book in a nice, rule-abiding way. Right. This actually would have been a super interesting case. It's a real-world example of the public bodies issues that we were talking about in episode 47. What is a subsidy? Are these Chinese state-owned enterprises, the ones that are providing cheap inputs to China's aluminum makers, are they public bodies? And so are they officially capable of handing out these subsidies? Oh, what fun the lawyers could have had. If the Americans had won, it would have been based on the argument that, yes, these were subsidies. And these subsidies hurt American producers. They stopped them from competing for sales in China, in the U.S., or even in Canada or Europe. And had the Americans won, then either the Chinese government would have had to stop handing out the subsidies, or the American government would have been completely within its WTO rights to hit them with tariffs. And that eventually might have persuaded the Chinese to stop. It could have actually gotten at the underlying source of the problem. This case could have been a really big deal as well if it had set a precedent for future cases involving Chinese subsidies to other industries. It could have been. So the Obama administration filed the case as it was walking out the door, accusing China of breaking the WTO's rules by subsidizing its aluminum industry. Then the Trump administration took over and nothing. The case is just still sitting there. They're not pursuing it. Obviously, this is not what I would have done. The Trump administration said that it was going down a different route. So let's talk about what they did do, which is to look at the decline in primary aluminium production and launch an investigation into whether imports were a threat to America's national security. Here's Heidi Brock, head of the American Aluminum Association. The, the Aluminum Association represents about 70% of U.S. production. Apologies for the background noise. Heidi and I spoke in the Montreal airport on the way back from the Global Aluminum Summit in June. I asked her what she thought about the Trump administration's investigation. We thought it was absolutely appropriate for uh, the Trump administration to look at the question of whether imports of aluminum were impacting U.S. national security. And that's because the U.S. aluminum industry does supply our defense industry. I mean, our, we have aluminum articles. They're in Humvees. They're in, you know, Navy ships. Uh, we are in armor. You know, aluminum is this lightweight, strong material that's increasingly being used in the military. Yes, it is a small percentage of the aluminum market, 
But the, the challenge is you can't have that very high end of very innovative applications happening if you don't have a very healthy and substantial base and portfolio mix of products upon which to, uh, to produce and innovate around. I'm just going to point out here that America just fundamentally relies on imports right now. So to make aluminum from scratch, as I said, you need bauxite. But America imports nearly all of the bauxite that it uses to make alumina and then aluminum. Maybe given the right price, one could mine American bauxite. Though I don't know if there actually would be enough to go around. Anyway, I asked Heidi about what they were telling the Trump administration during this investigation. Well, during the investigation, we participated in the hearing at the Department of Commerce. We had meetings with officials. And the, the position that we consistently advocated was use this opportunity to focus on the problem, which is illegally subsidized overcapacity coming out of China. So focus the problem on China, hold other trading partners harmless, and focus on the aluminum value chain. And by the way, we also think it would be helpful to have a, a monitoring system to monitor what's happening in the aluminum industry, much like what they have in the steel industry. As we all know, the Trump administration didn't target China. Instead, they imposed tariffs of 10% on aluminum coming from pretty much all of America's trading partners, including Canada. So somewhere along the line, this has all gone a bit wrong. The shift in primary aluminum production from the US to Canada helps to make the U.S. decline look really, really dramatic. But that's not the problem that the American Aluminium Association wanted to fix. And now the Trump administration's solution involves hitting Canada. American producers just don't want that. Here's Heidi. So the U.S. aluminum industry last year produced just under 1 million metric tons of aluminum. And we have the capacity to produce up to 2 million metric tons. That's if we turned on everything that the U.S. has currently available. But the U.S. aluminum industry consumed more than five and a half million metric tons of aluminum. And that means that we are absolutely required to import aluminum ingot uh, from around the world. Basically, there's just no way that American production can ramp up quickly enough to supply all of the aluminum being demanded. So aluminum companies, who the tariffs were theoretically supposed to help, have been having to fork out to pay the tariff to get in the aluminum from overseas. On August 6th, Alcoa, which is one of the two companies smelting aluminum in the US, it applied for an exemption from the tariffs so that it could import aluminum from its Canadian subsidiary. Here's Heidi from the Aluminum Association again. We think that the tariffs, we've been asking for no tariffs, no quotas on trading partners that are operating as market economies. We really want this problem focused on the issue, which is China, and the illegal subsidies occurring in China, which is the structural issue for the global aluminum industry. And we're concerned that because 97% of the jobs, the aluminum jobs in the United States are in the mid and downstream, we're concerned that those jobs are at stake. Now, this is a really interesting point. In a lot of the debate about these tariffs in general, people have been trying to point out that if you make inputs more expensive, then that hurts the people consuming those inputs. So it hurts the people using steel and aluminium. In this case, some of the people using aluminium are within the aluminium industry. Higher prices of primary aluminum are not necessarily in the best interest of the rest of the aluminum industry. And that's where actually where most of the jobs are. The primary producers like it when the prices of aluminum are high, but the secondary producers who are buying up scrap and processing it into something else, or the companies who are rolling it or turning it into aluminum foil or those cans, 
They quite like it when their raw material is cheap. So logically, one could conclude that these tariffs are therefore hurting the very companies that they're trying to help. And in this week's piece in The Economist that I would encourage everyone to read, I tried to look into what has actually been happening to those companies. If they're so integrated, then maybe these tariffs are a complete disaster. And a quick spoiler, that isn't really quite what I found. If you look in the data, it does seem like there has been a drop in imports as well as an increase in aluminum prices. That's in America. And, and looking through Alcoa's earnings statement for the second quarter of 2018, they're the ones who asked for the tariff exemption, they have paid out money in tariffs, but their earnings seem to increase even more because of rising aluminium prices. As well as helping profits for aluminium companies, the Trump administration really wanted its tariffs to stimulate primary aluminium production in the US. And it does seem that the higher prices have supported the restart of some idled production, although compared to overall US demand, it's still not very much. I should add the caveat that commodity prices are really volatile, and we only have a couple of months of data. And in historical context, the price and production changes that we've seen over the past few months, they haven't been extremely large. And there is a lot of other stuff also going on. Some of the price increases have happened because of the price of alumina. That's the raw input. Well, that's gone up. Earlier this year, there were two massive disruptions in its supply. In March, a large Brazilian supplier had to shut down half of its production because of some environmental problems. And at the same time, the American government was also threatening sanctions on Rusol, a massive Russian supplier of alumina. Alumina prices surged as people basically started panic buying, and that pushed up the price of aluminium. The point is, there's been a lot of noise. And to try and get a sense of how this is all working together, I spoke to Delphine Dahan-Cochet. She works for Constellium, which is one of the companies buying and processing the raw aluminium. Constellium has 24 plants around the world, mainly in North America. It designs and makes products for planes, cars, and packaging. Companies like Constellium rely on imports from Canada to make their products. Here's Delphine. Some of our plants are doing automobile components, uh, what we call automotive structures, such as these are, for instance, scratch management systems or bumpers for, for cars. Um, so to give you an example of how critical this, this supply chain is, our plant in, in Detroit, Michigan, provides Ford with pretty much all the bumpers for its F-150 trucks, which is the best-selling truck in, in North America. If we were to stop production of our bumpers because we don't have any more metal coming from Canada, then there would be a two, there would be only two days because before Ford has to also stop production. It's a very short timeline between when when we have the products and when we need to deliver it. That's how critical the supply chain is. So it's really just not an option for you to stop importing aluminium. You need to carry on importing and pay the ten percent tariff. Uh, absolutely, we we need to and and even. I mean, there's no there's no backup plan. There's not any enough capacity in in the U.S. We we also pass through business, so um, we will be passing this ten percent to our end customers. Um, so the impact is not going to be on us, but it's going to be on our end customers and ultimately on every citizen in the United States. Since we spoke, Constellium's CEO told analysts that they have mostly been able to pass on the extra costs to their buyers. And I've spoken to other analysts who say that more generally, yes, this does seem to be what has happened. So far, these secondary producers or the processors, they've been able to pass on these extra costs because of the tariffs. In the short run, that might be fine. 
But if these higher prices persist, then it could come back to bite them. Aluminum producers want people to buy their stuff, but they also face competition from other materials. Aluminum cans compete with glass or plastic bottles, and in aerospace, aluminum competes with composites, mixtures of things like carbon fiber. And in cars, aluminum competes with steel. I'm sure there are some aluminum producers out there just dreaming of a scenario in which the tariffs had only been put on steel. Then steel would have become really, really expensive relative to aluminum. It would have been great. It would have made, it would have made aluminum seem like a bargain. Dreams aside, tariffs just don't seem to be the answer. And the fundamental reason is they're just too uncertain. A new smelter takes billions of dollars of investment, and it's meant to last decades. These tariffs have been on for a few months, and they could be withdrawn at any moment. I spoke to Dave Ernsberger at S&P Global Platz. He's a self-confessed aluminum guy, and he was confirming to me just how important energy costs are. And it's cheap, long-term energy contracts that is going to be the thing that makes primary aluminum production viable. Now, interestingly, he did say that energy in the U.S. now is a lot cheaper than it was 10 years ago when all of these smelters were closing down, and that now there are a lot of conversations happening between aluminium producers and energy suppliers. So maybe we're about to see a ramp up in production. Personally, I don't see why we needed tariffs for that to happen, but fine. The other thing Dave said was that in the long run, if you're going to have globally competitive aluminium smelters, then the ones in America probably need to be a bit bigger. These days, the big producers are competing based on their economies of scale. But if you're going to persuade these chief executives to invest in those massive plants, then there just needs to be a quantum leap of confidence, both in their ability to get higher prices and also in their ability to secure the long-run energy supplies. And that confidence just isn't there right now. Part of that could be that there is just so much Chinese capacity out there. The Chinese government has made some moves to shut down some of that capacity. The plants are horrible for the environment, and they're trying to fix that. But there's a debate about how much new capacity they're bringing on at the same time. As all this goes on further down the supply chain, China's rise is a really big concern for Delphine at Constellium. So there is this misconception that downstream aluminum is somehow protected from China because we're doing value-added products and there we don't have much competition. But that's, that's really not true. First of all, it's not true because China is growing its downstream business and it's, it is getting into um, products such as uh, aerospace plates, for instance, that we are producing that are added value products. Um, but also, and most importantly, um, our plants have a large capacity and a large volume, very huge investment. So we, we need to always have volumes going through these plants for them to be efficient. And this cannot be only value add products. We need also to have some commodities products as we, as we call them. To give you an example, in our plant in West Virginia, in Ravenswood, we do produce add value, added value products such as aerospace plates or defense products. But we need also to have plates, like what we call engineered plates, which are more commodities, in order to our plan, for our plant to run efficiently. And those plates have been hit very hard by Chinese competition, um, which really um, damage the whole economy of a plant itself. So far, it doesn't seem like these tariffs have made a huge amount of progress towards solving any kind of China-related problem. One could take away from all of this that Trump's tariffs are not solving the underlying issue, and instead they're creating new ones. 
And this would not be the only episode from which you could take that conclusion. I think that is enough aluminium geekery for today, and on that happy note, I think that is all for Trade Talks. There are a lot of thank yous to make this week. A huge thank you to Heidi Brock from the Aluminium Association, Delphine Dahancochet from Constellium, Dave Ernstberger at S&P Global Platts, Michael Widmer at Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Jean Simard of the Canadian Aluminium Association, Lloyd Carroll, an independent aluminium analyst, and I'm sure a few other people I have forgotten to mention. Thank you for sharing your views on the shiny but flexible world of aluminium. And a big thank you to our audio guy, Colin Warren. As usual, tell everyone you know about the podcast, tweet out your links to your favorite episodes, and tweet us nice things. I write for a magazine without any bylines. I need external validation. I'm at Samaya Keynes. And I'm at Chad Bowne. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks. Because when it comes to this shiny metal, one pronunciation just wasn't enough. No, there's, there's just one. It's aluminium. Although part of me does just want to start saying aluminum because I'm just so bored of the jokes.